2: Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at Radio Team at BeyondZeroEmissions dot Tonight's show is called Momentum Gathers Towards Paris. There's so much momentum at the moment, there are so many meetings to go to, that I thought I'd give you a little bit of a taste of some of the variety of things that are happening. Last week we heard Professor Kevin Anderson, and tonight we're going to hear another very small talk, five minutes, uh, about his... Response to Naomi Klein's book and how people have more power than they know about. You know, he says we ha- don't really have to wrestle power away from the fossil fuel companies. We already have the power, we just need to find the will to exert it. And Since making this program, we've just had the changeover of Prime Minister, and I've included here a talk by Malcolm Turnbull he gave at the Beyond Zero Emissions launch back in 2010 when Beyond Zero Emissions published its first book. Malcolm Turnbull was on the stage, giving us every sign that he understood exactly what we were about and was all for it. We'll hear also from Professor Will Steffen from the Climate Council, and then Several of the small talks um, about people telling their stories like David Caroli, Professor from Melbourne University, talking about how he got into climate science, Stephen Bygraves talking about why we need to still keep pressing for zero emissions and even beyond zero emissions, why it 's so urgent this talk uh, this evening 's talk starts with Malcolm Turnbull now. I was there in the PAC Sydney Town Hall and the atmosphere was electric. It's now five years later and um, I am trying not to overreact to Turnbull becoming the Prime Minister. Uh, I've never voted for him but I'm in his electorate and I've always hoped that he would come good because he spoke so well that night at the Sydney Town Hall. Uh, Since becoming Prime Minister, he has kept Greg Hunt as Environment Minister, even though Turnbull himself said the direction action plan was bullshit. He's kept the same irresponsibly low emissions reduction targets, and he's still a neoliberal. We have to realise that behind the scenes he would have had to have made deals, and I hope these are only short term. One of the people he would have dealt with was the Nationals' leader and now the Nationals have have, uh, elected a new leader and Barnaby Joyce must have voted for that person even though he said he would protect the Liverpool Plains. But that person is Larry Anthony and he is known personally to have argued the case for Shenhua's coal mines over the rights of Liverpool Plains farmers. Uh, none of the major parties are calling for fossil fuel subsidies, in the, which are in the billions. Every year, billions going to subsidise this last-century industry, fossil fuel. Yet the same amount, the billions that are going into those subsidies, would pay for the whole Beyond Zero plan to get uh, zero-carbon electricity, 100% renewable energy, electricity. electricity. Um, I know these are drawbacks, but... Whatever the short-term deals Turnbull has made, I think there has been a change in culture. As one commentator said, there was a kind of collective sigh of relief when Turnbull took over. One of the things I've been reporting upon is the media and these... Um, think tanks and psychology that's going into disempowering people. And I'm very hoping that Turnbull will frown on the IPA agenda, such as you heard last week when I reported from New South Wales Parliament, where the Liberal member Peter Phelps called out to the public gallery that the people there were psychopaths, socialists, and suckers. You know, how insulting to say that to the public who are only defending the land against coal seam gas. I hope Abbott will create a a cultural change in the Liberal Party, where that is seen as old Cold War rhetoric. We know that Tony Abbott was dog-whistling racists and reactionaries and wind farm haters. It was a desperate effort to keep us locked in the 1950s, and Turnbull has sort of whistled up a different uh, tune here. Just as he agreed to speak the launch of the Zero Carbon Australia Plan, He will call on the expertise of many people keen to work on renewable energy and change land and water management and more resilient cities. I was heartened by some of the words Turnbull said in his first week, and I'd just like to repeat what gave me hope. The Australia of the future has to be... a nation that is agile that is innovative that is creative we can't be defensive we can't future proof ourselves we have to recognize that the disruption we see is driven by technology and the volatility in change is our friend if we are agile and smart enough to take advantage of it now that is really what a lot of our guests on this program have been saying over the years and i hope that turnbull will promote those ideas I'm hoping he'll go to Paris, and then he can come back and say, OK, everybody, time to recalibrate. I hope that Labour and Liberal will fight out the next election on who can get the highest renewable energy targets and who can phase out coal the quickest. If the country voters would show the National Party that if they're just a party for miners and they're not going to stick up for the rural livelihoods, well, then they're out on their head. I hope also that city voters outside election time will start getting active, will join up with 350.org or Lock the Gates, Friends of the Earth. You know, I don't care which one you join up with, Greenpeace, Beyond Zero Emissions, there's something there for all of us to do, to learn a lot and to use all the millions of skills we have to bring in these kinds of innovations. It really is a kind of wartime situation and everybody needs to step up, not sit back. I think perhaps learning how to tweet the politicians and the companies would be good. I'm trying to learn how to do that. And to turn up the heat at massive rallies so that they can see we mean business. You could also pass on the video of Malcolm Turnbull giving this speech that I'm going to play to you now. It's attached to our podcast. And by the way, Malcolm Turnbull mentions Matthew several times. And that person is Matthew Wright, who was the first CEO of Beyond Zero Emissions. He was always on the radio program, the Beyond Zero Emissions technical program, and he gave me a lot of help getting started in radio. And he is the prototype of the sort of innovative, disruptive, agile mind that I am hoping the new Parliament will consult and promote from now on.
3: Well, well thank you very much, Quentin. It's, um, it's uh, distinctly... Uh, um, I'm privileged to be categorised as a pariah here tonight. Uh, you know, it's an interesting thing, Quentin, made the point that um, this issue, this issue of clean energy and climate change has not been at the forefront... Of this election, and Bob Carr just said to me a moment ago that he didn 't he didn't think there were any media covering this meeting tonight i don 't know whether that 's true or not, but it is remarkable that on a cold winter 's night, this issue has managed to fill the town hall, and that tells you something. That tells you something about the extent of the concern that Australians have about climate change and the interest in and hunger for information and knowledge about the way we can deal with it and the way we can move, as we must move if we are to effectively combat climate change, to a situation where all or almost all of our energy comes from zero or very near zero emission sources. Now, our response to climate change must be guided by science. The science tells us that we have already exceeded the safe upper limit for atmospheric carbon dioxide. We are, as humans, conducting a massive science experiment with this planet. It's the only planet we've got. We are dealing, in scientific terms, with enormous uncertainty. There is a tendency for people to point to the forecasts uh, for the future, sea, level, sea levels, temperatures, other impacts of climate change, and say, oh, well, you know, they've, they've over the pudding a little bit. It's probably going to be uh, less dramatic than that. But we are dealing with uncertainty. And it may well be, and indeed there is considerable evidence, that it may well be that many of these forecasts that we've become so used to, in fact, err on the conservative side. We 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 are told that 2010 will be the warmest year on record since records began in the late 1800s. We know that the consequences of unchecked global warming would be catastrophic. We know that extreme weather events are occurring with greater and greater frequency. And while it is never possible to point to one drought or one storm or one flood and say that particular incident is caused by global warming, we know that these trends are entirely consistent with the climate change forecasts, with the climate models that the scientists are relying on. Just in the last month, month, floods and landslides have killed thousands in Kashmir, Poland, Pakistan, Korea and China. Russia has lost at least 30% of its grain crop due to the worst fires in that country's history. Now, sometimes the task of responding to the challenge of climate change may seem too great, too daunting. It is a profound moral challenge because it is a cross-generational challenge. We are asking our own generation to make decisions, to make sacrifices, to make expenditures today so as to safeguard our children, their children and the generations that come after them. It truly requires us to think as a species, not just to think as individuals we are not, as Edmund Burke reminded us so many years ago, like flies of the summer that just come and go without any knowledge of what went before and what will come after. We as a human species have a deep and abiding obligation to this planet and to the generations that will come after us. And in order Now, in order to do that, in order to discharge that obligation, we must make a dramatic reduction in the world's greenhouse gas emissions. Now, you can look at the targets, a 50%, the common sort of rubric, rule of thumb is to cut emissions by 2050 to a level equal to 50% or even lower uh, than they were in 1990 or, or 2000. I promise you, you cannot achieve that cut, you cannot achieve it, without getting to a point by mid-century where all or almost all of our stationary energy, that is to say energy from power stations and big factories and so forth, comes from zero emission sources. You that the mathematics simply will not get you there, the arithmetic. Not not, not as complex as mathematics. The arithmetic will not get you there unless you can do it. And so technology is of absolutely vital importance. Now, I want to congratulate Matthew and all the authors and collaborators on this report. This is a fantastic piece of work. Many people will look at it and they'll say it's too good to be true. And we all know that often when things are too good to be true, They probably are. But let me say, let me give you one piece of data, one fact, one insight, which should give you encouragement as you read this report. You'll see that the key technology that this project relies upon is concentrated solar thermal power. As you know, the great challenge with uh, renewable sources of energy, solar and wind in particular, is that they are intermittent. So what do we do when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing? How do we store that power? There's a very detailed discussion that the authors will go through with you tonight, and I won't even begin to uh, canvass it. But there is the ability with concentrated solar thermal power stations to use the sun's energy to superheat a substance, in this case, molten salt, that will hold its heat for long enough to be able to continue to generate steam and hence energy after the sun has stopped shining or you know, after, during day after day of rain. So th- there is a real opportunity there with that technology to generate baseload power from solar energy, something of a holy grail. Now, there are some small plants in operation that are doing just that now, and there are a number of much larger plants that are about to be commissioned. And you, but you might still say, not unreasonably, look, this has not really been proven at a big industrial scale. And you'd probably, probably be right. But let me say this to you. Concentrated solar thermal is a more proven technology than clean coal is. Now, when I was your Environment Minister, I spent a lot of your taxes on technologies designed to reduce our emissions, including clean coal, including solar energy, including technologies to store, uh, to e- economically store electricity so that renewable sources of energy could provide baseload power. But One of the things, and it's a sobering thing to bear in mind, and those of us that follow the literature on clean coal would be aware aware of this, that despite all of the money and all of the hope that has been put into carbon capture and storage, there is still as of today not one industrial scale coal-fired power station using carbon capture and storage. Not one. Now, this this is a frightening prospect because if you look at the work that's done by the International Energy Agency or any number of of bodies, think tanks that study how we can model our way to a low emission future, clean coal is a very big part of the assumption. And while I believe as as a matter of prudence we should continue to invest and pursue that technology, you do start to get something of a sinking feeling as you contemplate the fact that the hope of the side has not yet stepped onto the field to play his first game. It's a real challenge. So all of that underlines firstly don't be too skeptical about this. This is a good piece of work and the, the most radical technology in it is far from unproved. Secondly Let's remember, governments should not be picking technologies. It's tough enough for the private sector to pick technologies. It's almost invariably the case that governments will get it wrong. That is why in the long term, and really sooner rather than later, we must have a price on carbon. We need we need to send that price signal to the market that encourages the step changes in technology that will transform our economy. And it may be that that, uh, concentrated solar thermal wins the day. It may be that super-efficient photovoltaics sprint ahead. It may be, despite my rather gloomy prognosis, it may be that carbon capture and storage suddenly leaps into the fore or it may be that they all have a role to play. But without that carbon price you will not and cannot unleash the ingenuity, the infinite ingenuity of millions of people around the world who once they know what the rules are, once they know what the price is will then start to work to ensure that they have presented to us and to the world the technologies that enable us to move to that low emission future. Government support for innovation and investment in clean stationary energy is important, particularly at the early stages. It is much more important to focus on cutting edge technologies as to provide support for research into the basic science than with appallingly designed policies such as the recent cash-for-clunkers policy, which delivers carbon abatement at a price of almost $400 a tonne. I mean, it is really a mockery of a climate change policy. Now, we must give the planet the benefit of the doubt. We must act now. Now, the Coalition, as you know, no longer supports a market-based mechanism to put a price on carbon, and I regret that. Nonetheless, it has pledged, if elected, to introduce policies which by purchasing carbon offsets has the potential to meet the 2020 target uh, of a 5% reduction from 2000 levels. On the other hand, and this is I guess the depressing prospect, the Labor Party which was elected in 2007 on a platform of meeting the greatest moral challenge of our times now has no policy and sadly nothing more than what appears to be a notice for a meeting. No leadership and no conviction. I want to congratulate Matthew again and all his team for this extraordinary piece of work. It is very important work. It provides the most comprehensive technical blueprint yet for what our engineers, our scientists can begin to do for us tomorrow. I commend them for their work. We're deeply indebted to you all for this work, and I encourage them and others to take note of this and to build on it as we work together, I trust, to the zero-emission future we know is absolutely essential if if we are to leave a safe planet to our children and the generations that come after them. Thank you very much.
4: Ah, that uh, brings a tear to my eye. That's Malcolm Turnbull talking at the Sydney Town Hall at the launch of a Beyond Zero Emissions Energy uh, paper in 2010. And uh, one can hardly believe, after listening to that, that uh, Turnbull seems to be hitching his star to the wagon of direct action. But maybe that will change after the next election. You're listening to Beyond Zero Emissions. My name is Jane Now, as a parting gesture to Tony Abbott, we hear from artist David Watson talking to Vivian at an outdoor art show on Sydney Harbour.
2: I'm in Woolwich and I've found David Watson here who is presenting a piece of work called The Abbott Proof Fence. So hello David, welcome to the program again.
1: Hi Vivian, Great to uh, be here on this sunny yavo on Sydney Harbour.
2: You were just saying that some artists don't like something that's uh, political, and this is uh, five solar panels. How unpolitical could that be?
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, I guess it's been a bit of a wrangle throughout art history. But at this pressing moment in uh, the history of the world, I think it behoves a lot of artists to to begin to think about things that are uh, about to threaten the future of the planet and, of course, (laughs) their their lives as well as uh, many other... billions of human beings yeah. so it is a kind of interesting and uh pressing time
2: well you're harking back to the rabbit proof fence which was a you know desperate measure in the day trying to keep the rabbits out of western australia was it or into west i can't remember yeah. what I it believe actually was it was
1: 1907 and at that time it was the world's longest fence and it was an attempt to keep the rabbits out of western australia and i think there were several iterations of the fence the first one was 1907 And, of course, your uh, listeners will probably know the book and the film, Phil Noyce's film, David Elphick produced, 1996, I think it was. Uh, And, of course, that's kind of entered the the public imaginary.
2: Yeah. Uh,
1: And 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 so has this work.
2: Yeah, (laughs) we play on the word rabbit-proof. Everyone seems to get
1: it. So it is deep within our psyche, the whole idea of rabbit-proof fences.
2: So why? what were you thinking of when you were putting this all together? How is this fence of solar panels, which is just that, they're just a fence of solar panels, looking out over this beautiful bit of Sydney Harbour with gum trees all around? Uh,
1: I have a plaque in front of the fence, which says, "Abbott uh, Proof Fence, Caring for Country, Celebrating 1.4 Million Solar Homes. So I guess the, the feeling behind this fence is that despite the fact that we have a wrecking ball of a coalition government headed by Mr Abbott who hates uh, not only uh, wind uh, with his mate uh, Joe but in the last couple of weeks has gone very public about his hatred of solar uh, whilst approving massive new coal mines up and down the country. So it seems to me that Australians have taken the matter into their own hands and uh, this is a celebration in a sense of uh, Australians' people power Uh, saying, well, okay, the government's not supporting this, but (laughs) we know it's the Mm. way to go. We know it's the future. Mm. We have children. Mm. We don't want them to be, uh, you know, dying from the effects of global warming in 30 years. Mm. Uh, Let's get thinking about renewables. Let's not get the wrecking ball to it. Let's actually lead the world in the sunniest and windiest continent on Earth. It's a no-brainer, as they say, but a lot of people don't seem to get it. Mm. So I wanted to make a work about it because I've been very, very perturbed by this government as i'm sure most of your listeners have been i
2: think it's this thing about the voters that you can get through to the voters by saying oh aren't they ugly those window bounce or oh i just Mm. don't like it then and yet so many people like are screaming out around new south Wales, like bulgar people who are right in the face of this grand canyon coming right down on their village Mm -hmm. and many towns have been swept away by the coal mines that's ugly that's Devastating, and it's very ugly for the future because it has this climate impact, the exported coal. But how do you, do you get it that voters are actually open to these sort of aesthetic arguments? Ooh, they're ugly, I don't like them. It seems so simple-minded to me.
1: I think as the facts of global warming hit home, it's evident to anyone with half a brain that a sa- sustainable future is the only way to go. Um, we cannot go on poisoning the earth, wrecking the earth, um, disrespecting country, as we have for one hundred and fifty years it 's been terrific i mean there 's no debate coal 's mm. been terrific for the uh, mm. the largely white
2: uh, well mm.
1: rather well off population of Australia for a good deal of time, but it is no longer all right mm. and it 's the canary in the mind. mix a few metaphors there. Yeah, yeah. The canary is dead it 's yeah. time to wake up.
2: Well, David Watson is the artist I'm speaking to and he's famous for doing a swim along the Parramatta River and the last time I met you David you were thinking about a great walk along the power lines up to where Mm -hmm. the power is made and and I think you like following lines and like song lines Aboriginal people it's something you like this idea of travelling and seeing the country and you just introduced me to someone there who's into, interested in the Great Northern Walk and creating these walking paths. What, what do you think um, is the benefit of that, you know, walking in nature or following paths uh, to get the mind moving in the right fashion?
1: Mm. Well, I may be deluded, but I think there is a growing thirst amongst our populace, probably the populace of the globe, to get back to some meaningful, um, physical and often transcendental simple Uh, Ways of operating in the world. And walking is one of those, Uh swimming is another. The man you spoke of inaugurated the Great North Walk um, 30 years ago and that is now a well-beaten path between Sydney and Newcastle. But that didn't exist. People didn't think of walking through the bush for 14 days from Sydney to Newcastle. But now that's an accepted mode of experiencing this country and I think it is uh, an Aboriginal uh, way of uh, getting back into the place we've inhabited but perhaps have been wrecking inadvertently for a couple of hundred years and I think people are waking up to the fact that we need to be immersing ourselves far more carefully in our uh, in our places Mm. and treasuring those places and looking after those places and the globalized environment I think unfortunately through virtual uh, communication has almost by by accident meant that we don't have to worry about place because we're displaced we're in virtual space and i think the idea of having one's feet on the ground is is gaining some traction again almost because of that people are realizing they've become too disconnected from actual places which still do exist (laughs) despite the computer
2: well your your work is a bit of a parry to mr abbott and we know he's a, a fighter if you had him with you sitting here on this rock looking out over the Sydney Harbour, what would you like to say to him? He's a man in history, we're people in history. It's so vital that the next decade we do something radical the world has to do radical things and they're working on it but it all seems a bit slow. What would you say to him?
5: I'd
1: say to him being an economic uh, pragmatist, Tony take into account the economic and social costs of coal mining, of fossil fuels if you're going to compare them to the almost uh, non-existent environmental and social costs of renewables. And then you can compare apples with oranges. Mm. At the moment, we're we're purporting that that coal is just a free kick and why wouldn't you want to use it? Mm. Well, it's not a free kick. It's actually poisoning us and the lives of Indians and Chinese. And the sooner the world uh, wakes up to this. I think the, uh, the sunnier will be this country and the world's future.
2: Thank you. That was David Watson at an art exhibition. His artwork is called The Abbott Proof Fence. And as Viv just
4: said, that was David Watson, uh, clearly recorded when Abbott was still Prime Minister. Last week we heard Tyndall Centre's Professor Kevin Anderson on why scientists are not telling us really how wrong the targets we are looking at in Paris will be. Here we have another Kevin Anderson piece talking from London about Naomi Klein's book, This Changes Everything. He says we already have the power to wrestle with the vested interests of coal, oil and gas, and it seems, according to him, that we just don't know yet what we can achieve. Listen how, as he sees great scope for us to get our democracy to work in our interests.
6: Uh, th- this changes everything, uh, I said earlier, and that happens to be the title of Naomi Klein's new book. Yes. Uh, have you read it? I, I read an early version of it, You yes. read an early version of it. Any area... Could you just sum it, sum it up, for people who haven't read it, as best you can, any areas of disagreement with her? Because that would be my headline, you know, catfight between academic and activist. <laughs> um... No, there are no there are no significant areas of disagreement. There are things that we, we need to, that, that I would view differently to her on, on some areas. So I, I, well, her book takes a particular focus. It doesn't try to resolve all the issues around climate change, and I, and I think it's it is a it's a very well made argument. And I think it's hard to really disagree with her thesis within the book. And it's a well it's well referenced. It's it's careful and, and, and thoughtfully put together. But I don't think it is it it, it you know it, it changes everything. It doesn't solve everything. Um, and I think the solutions are the part where I think we, we may have some disagreements on, on some of those things. Or, but when I say disagreements, we may just approach these issues differently. And of course, we come from very different cultural backgrounds. In some respects, they're different cultural backgrounds anyway. Um, I, I, I think her, her big focus, I think, is on, is, is on industry and government, uh, which I think, and I think they are they are obviously pivotal to this to this agenda. But nevertheless, I also think that individuals are very important. Not in and of themselves, but in that collectives of individuals have emergent properties that things that come out of what it is that they do and the great thing about emergent properties is that we don 't know what they are, so in fact, they sort of give us hope that the small changes that we can make as long as we, we we vocalize those as long as we engage with others that they can actually in the end manifest a significant change an emergent outcome of those lots of collective lots of small actions that are going on um, and so I would say that there's, that if you like in, in, the, in the trilogy of of, of organizations that need to be involved, uh, companies, governments, uh, but also individuals and institutions and collectives of in- individuals, I think they are very important, and i don 't think that that I, if I was writing something to accompany klein 's book, then I think I would probably try to focus a bit more on on, the, on that dimension, um, which actually plays into the same stories that she's talking about anyway. She makes a very powerful case that that what we have at the moment are vested interests. But they are very small numbers of people that actually are in those that, that are engaged in investing just and get something out of the status quo, and then there's this there's this huge swathe of people, the majority of society, both in our own society, countries here, but also much more um, you know, globally, and we at the moment are powerless. We have, but actually, I'm, and she's made this point about making the powerless powerful, and I think it's a really strong message. But then I started to think about this more recently, and I think we are actually powerful at the moment. We're just choosing not to exert that power. And that gives us actually even greater scope for more rapid change. Because it's not that we've got to wrestle the power back from the vested interests, but we already have that power. We are just choosing not to exert it. So we, we you know, we look at the Scottish referendum, and you had a, whatever it was, an 87% or something turnout. You know, people were engaged in that process. Now, we and certainly in democracies, we have real scope for engaging Either at just times of elections, but actually outside of elections, all politi- politicians know that they've got to they've got to keep their electorate on side. And at the moment, most many of the electorate don't vote. What do we, do we have? A thirty seven percent turnout in the recent by elections, um, which is I think I think it was that low is appalling. But we have that scope, we have that chance as individuals to exert power, either democratically within companies as customers, as citizens, and we're we're choosing at the moment not to do that. So I think. Klein's message about wrestling away power from the, from the vested interests to the majority are well made, but actually I think we already have that power, so it's not just wrestling it away but exerting the power that we have um, so I think there are, there, are, there are things within her book that I would probably write slightly differently, but overall the thesis of her book, that we are fighting very powerful vested interests who have a history, and when I say history, this history is 100 years old, if not more of successfully, successfully um, adjusting, manipulating society in ways that are good for them and in the long run have turned out not to be good for the majority of us and certainly not good for future generations as well. I think that argument is well made um, and is one that we need to hit home you know, very firmly. And we can already see a lot of the best interests um, are lining up, lining up to oppose any significant changes to the status quo, the sorts of changes that she is pushing for, which I think now, unfortunately, I think we've got ourselves in a position where we have to change the status quo, we have to change some of our, some of our fundamental structures, need to be changed and adjusted uh, to deal with climate change. You can make broader arguments, that they need to be adjusted for other reasons, but I think as an academic looking at it from a climate change perspective, I have to park the other reasons. And from a climate change argument now, I would say the maths and the science are very clear that we have to adjust our structures to bring about the adjustments that we may, need to make.
4: Of our emissions. You're listening to 3CR. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions Show. And that last piece was Tyndall Centre, the UK Tyndall Centre's Professor Kevin Anderson, talking about Naomi Klein's book, This Changes Everything. The next item uh, we have to thank Roger Vyse for. He went along one cold night, one cold Melbourne night, to Melbourne University Union House to record these personal stories from climate leaders. Professor David Carrolly comes up first telling us how he started out in climate science. Then we have Beyond Zero Emissions CEO Stephen Bygrave who asks why can't Australians push for 100% emission reduction targets? I was
7: really interested in outdoor activities and the environment. And when I was doing low temperature solid state physics no one understood it at all. What I wanted to do was to be able to explain what I was doing to my mother. And I realised that everyone, everyone had an interest in the climate. And suddenly I realised that if I did maths and I did physics, I could apply it to understanding the behavior of the atmosphere. Fast forward a bit more than a decade, and in 1987 I was doing research on climate variations and climate change and trying to disprove this new idea that increases in greenhouse gases were having an impact on the climate. This was in the mid-1980s. Climate change was not a major news item then. And I was a mad scientist who thought everyone else was wrong and that climate change to increasing greenhouse gases just wasn't happening. I looked at temperature data from all around the southern hemisphere. The more I looked, the more I found that even in the mid-1980s, there was already a significant impact from increasing greenhouse gases on the observed climate. My first research paper got published in 1987 showing that human influences were already affecting the climate. And since that time, in the next 30-something years, what we now see is that there is no doubt that human activity is changing the climate system. That increases in greenhouse gases due to burning fossil fuels and other industrial activities are changing the climate. The only people that doubt that are experts like Andrew Bolt (laughs) and the Prime Minister when he's away from the public. (laughs) There are some things he got right, but a tenth is wrong. Coal was good for humanity, but we do know that if we keep using fossil fuels, if we keep deforesting the planet, climate change will get significantly worse. We know that as we continue our current way of life, using coal to generate electricity, it produces more and more greenhouse gases, they stay in the atmosphere a long time, and it causes long-term impacts. And all the impacts that we scientists like myself have been projecting for long into the future are already happening. They're the things we've been experiencing in Victoria 10 years, more hot extremes, more bushfires, more heavy rain events, increases in sea level causing coastal erosion, we are seeing all those already. And what we do know is that as we emit more greenhouse gases, climate change ramps up even more and the impacts get bigger. We also know we have choices, but these choices need to be made very, very soon. And the choices we have are like Goldilocks, but we don't have a just right planet to go back to. We have a planet that is warmer, or a planet that is disastrously warm. And that disastrously warm is 4 to 6 degrees warmer. That's what we get when we follow the Gina Reinhardt scenario, which is dig it up and burn it as quickly as possible. And unfortunately that also seems to be the scenario for many members of the current government. And a significant fraction of the Labour Party as well. We just have to make sure that we follow the other choice. And that other choice can limit global warming to less than 2 degrees above pre industrial levels. But that is still a disastrously different planet with significant sea level rise affecting many low-lying communities. It's a significant impact which increases temperatures, which increases heat waves in Victoria and Melbourne. But what we have to do is we have to make choices now because the long-term impacts are such that the planet that we will live on will be a different planet than we've ever experienced. And the planet that we're looking at looks a lot more like Venus. It isn't Venus, it's just really hot. That seems to be what a large number of the current government want. I think the majority of Australians don't want it. So the choices we have
5: and the decisions we make now about our energy use and about our lifestyles
7: will determine what we experience, what our children experience. Those choices and how we achieve them, and we'll leave that to everyone else to answer those questions because it's too hard for me. Thank you. Well, it's always a
5: pleasure to speak after David because you've all heard about science, and David is a world renowned expert on
0: climate science. BZE, Beyond Zero Emissions, we absolutely accept the science, and our job is to say we have solutions and to identify those solutions that can be implemented right now. Even many of the world's leaders are now saying we need to go to net zero emissions in the second half of the century in order just to get to two degrees warming. So this is going to be a huge challenge, but it's also something that can be done. We have renewable energy now in Australia, which has the hot rooftop solar has the highest penetration rate in Australia than anywhere else in the world thanks to our colleagues, mostly in, in South Australia, where that's just going gangbusters. We've shown that we can actually transition to uh, 100% renewable energy in, in Australia in 10-year period. I was in Canberra last night uh, where I saw Mark Butler speak, the opposition spokesman for environment and climate change. As you know, Labor has announced a 50% renewable energy target by 2030. I said, Mark, that's great. What um, about 100%? We were heading for 28% renewable energy in this country by 2020 until Tony Abbott uh, interfered with the target. I actually had the fortune of uh, designing that target back in government in the late 1990s. And the aim of that target was to set long-term investment signals. So when you play with the market, you send all sorts of uh, disinvestment and, and uncertainty in the market, and, which means 50% is a no-brainer by 2030. In fact, if you just keep current growth of renewables at its current state, you will get 50% by 2030. So 100% is uh, certainly ambitious, but we've shown this is achievable. We've also shown that there's technology such as concentrated solar power, which stores energy in molten salt techn- uh, technology overnight, which can generate 24-hour power. There's technology such as pump storage hydro, where. You can pump seawater water using wind technology during the day, pump it up to a turkey nest dam, release the water from that dam overnight when the wind isn't blowing, and thereby get 24-hour power base load generation. So this is technology that can meet all of our needs. Uh, in fact, with rooftop solar and the penetration rates in Australia, we're seeing um, wholesale prices actually fall. We're also seeing during peak periods. Uh, prices drop because solar is running in the day when you, when everyone's turning their conditions on. So in fact renewables offer an enormous opportunity in this country and as you know we're endowed with such vast resources here. We've also looked at things like electric vehicles, high-speed rail. Uh, these technologies can be powered by a grid which is based on 100% renewable energy. Um, the hard one's agriculture. One of the hardest things is, is talking about what decisions we make as individuals about what we eat. The beef beef industry is probably the second, if not the highest emissions-intensive activity in our country. We've shown that we can actually go to zero-emissions agriculture by stopping land clearing, which by the way, the Howard government tried to do and and was quite successful prior to the Kyoto Conference, which is why we got such an, uh, an easy target actually in the Kyoto Conference of 180%. Uh, an increase in the emissions, and we, we got that, Australia got that, because John Howard argued that we could stop land clearing. So stopping land clearing will actually reduce our emissions by 100 million tonnes a year, reducing livestock numbers by about 20%, uh, improving the, the times in which we burn savanna landscapes in the north of Australia, and also more effective manure management, soil management, and then reforesting only 13% of Australia's land mass which is steep or degraded or suffering from salinity, we can actually move to zero emissions agriculture. We've also looked at zero emissions buildings. We've got an initiative called Energy Freedom. Every home can be a net energy producer. So um, this can all be done. Um, I asked my partner last night about electric vehicles because he comes from uh, Port Adelaide. And as you know, the current government said that we won't have manufacturing in this country anymore. So I said to Mark, well, what about electric vehicles? Isn't this a great opportunity to uh, retrofit those factories which be making Holdens and Fords and Toyotas and other things? This is what Elon Musk has done in the USA. Tesla has bought mothballed uh, factories in the USA in Detroit, and uh, these vehicles actually are as high-performing as, uh, as the traditional uh, in- internal combustion engine vehicles. Um, they have ranges now of 500 kilometres. And by the way, our individual travel needs on average are only about 38 kilometres, more than enough of our daily travel needs. We're very much about solutions. We can do it. We have to do it. Because as I mentioned, the world, which is even two degrees warmer by the end of this century, if not four to six to eight degrees, which is where we're heading in a business usual scenario. And so please keep applying political pressure Keep doing what you can in your homes and how you transport yourselves and maybe what you eat. Um, Because together we can actually do this. Individuals, communities in the absence of national government action can actually do a hell of a lot. Thank
4: you. And that was CEO of Beyond Zero Emissions, Stephen Bygrave, along with Professor David Carrolly talking at Melbourne University Union House. Next, the next piece we have comes to us courtesy of the Guardian divestment campaign, which is well worth Googling and uh, having a read about, as well as listening to their podcasts. Uh, this, this piece is Bill McKibben on the moral imperative to shame the fossil fuel companies to leave it all in the ground.
6: There's this campaign going on, mainly in the US at the moment, and it's a new way into the whole climate debate that is a bit different from, you know, change your light bulbs. Divestment is a very simple idea.
3: You just take your money away from companies that are involved in extracting
6: fossil fuels. You want your money to be part of the solution and not part of the problem divestment is the biggest signal which any individual or
3: uh, company can give to the fossil fuel industry.
2: If you want to do something about climate change, you want those fossil fuel companies to stop burning the reserves they've got and you want them to behave differently. You do that by
6: refusing to buy their shares. Divestment says we do not accept your premise. We do not like what you're doing. And in practical terms, it's about moving your money away from the problem and towards the solution. I don't know about you, but I don't really have any shares. But We all have
2: stakes in pension funds and various forms of investment through our lives. And- And those investments will almost certainly include shares in fossil fuel companies.
5: A generation ago,
7: when the biggest moral issue in the world was apartheid in South Africa, Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu suggested this tactic, that it was time for the great institutions of the West to cut their economic ties with companies that propped up the apartheid regime. If there's ever going to be any kind of international agreement, it'll only be because our political and business leaders are feeling unrelenting pressure from all over the world.
3: So Unless there's political pressure to change, nothing will change. Divestment is very useful for shaming companies. It's very useful for bringing the issue out into the open more.
2: It provides a really powerful moral framework.
7: This is not a normal movement. There are no great leaders. There's no Dr. King of the climate movement. Fossil fuel industry is sprawling. It's uh, protean.
3: And so the resistance to it needs to be the same way. But that's the exciting part. The change isn't a technological change. It's not scientific change. It is now social change. We should be
2: tackling the fossil fuel companies directly. Leave it in the ground. In the ground.
4: Apologies, that last piece wasn't exclusively Bill McKibben talking on the need to shame fossil fuel companies to leave it all on the ground. Bill was the American voice and the other two voices, one was Alan Rusbridger, he was the now departed editor of The Guardian who who, uh, initiated and got up the Guardian divestment campaign and the female voice was I think one of the uh, senior journalists who was involved in uh, at the least putting the podcast together. Next up we have Professor Will Steffen and he says that the targets we're taking to Paris are way too low. No argument here. You will find the Climate Council report linked to our podcast of this show at both the Beyond Zero Emissions website and the 3CR website in the uh, respective podcast areas. So here's Professor Will Steffen.
7: The Climate Council says the case for the link between climate change and severe weather events has become much stronger. In a new report, the Council states that the world's climate system is changing more rapidly than expected. Angela Lavoisier
8: reports. The Climate Council's report gives a snapshot of the changes so far to Australia's climate, as well as changes it expects over the coming century. The council's Professor Will Steffen paints a grim picture.
5: One of the things that we uh, can say is that we're already seeing some impacts. Heat waves are lasting longer, starting earlier. We're seeing them in the southeast of the country. High bushfire danger weather has increased significantly over the last thirty years. We see that sea level has risen about uh, the global average around Australia. That's led to a threefold increase in coastal flooding. And then there's what's to come. If we keep, if the globe keeps emitting fossil fuel emissions like we are now, we could see up to a meter of sea level rise around Australia. That could, for example, make a one-in-a-hundred-year flooding event in Sydney, a daily event.
8: Professor Will Steffen says the influence of climate change on extreme weather events has become much clearer.
5: If you looked at the the report four years ago, um, we couldn't say much of anything about about that, even two years ago. Now we can say with high confidence, for example, that 2013, which was the hottest year on record in Australia, that was virtually impossible without climate change.
8: The federal government announced earlier this month it would take a target of between 26 and 28% to the global talks in Paris at the end of the year. The baseline for the reductions would be 2,005 levels. Along with many other climate change experts, Professor Stefan believes Australia's target is too low.
5: 195 countries around the world have signed up to 2 degrees as the maximum they want to see temperature rise. If you took the USA or the UK's target you would be in the ballpark. You'd have a fighting chance if you kept reducing at that rate afterwards, after 2030, you'd have a fighting chance of getting there. If you took Australia's target, you'd be heading for a three- or four-degree world with really serious impacts, uh, almost surely impacts we couldn't adapt to.
8: The Federal Environment Minister, Greg Hunt, doesn't see it that way.
5: Well, that's uh, not analysis that I've seen to this stage. The best analysis is that uh, we will make significant progress at the Paris Conference... Remember this: Australia is moving from minus five percent under Labor to minus twenty-six to minus twenty-eight percent under the Coalition.
8: Mr. Hunt believes Australia's comparatively small population
5: should be taken into account. Well, Warwick McKibben has made a very interesting point. He's a leading professor at ANU. He's talked about effort, and what we see is that Australia has the uh, highest per capita reductions of any significant country um, in our targets, so
8: a massive effort. The Climate Council's report is due to be released later this morning.
3: Angela Lavois pierre reporting.
4: And that's the show for Beyond Zero Emissions tonight. Good people.